Recently, security company FireEye discovered a cyber espionage operation in Asia, which appears to be the longest-running state-sponsored campaign against countries in the Southeast Asian region and India. The threat group dubbed APT30 have been targeting information assets in government, military, and critical industrial sectors, according to FireEye report. Hi, this is Varun Harun, Principal Correspondent for Information Security Media Group in Asia, and I'm speaking with Bryce Boland, who is the CTO for FireEye, and we're going to be discussing FireEye's APT30 report in some depth, and its key findings, including attack characteristics, modus operandi, the sectors the group seems to be targeting, and what they're after. Bryce will also be offering insights for practitioners in these critical sectors to better protect their organizations. Hi, Bryce. Thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Varun. Thanks for having me on. This is a very unique discovery. How did you discover this operation and what are some of your key findings? You know, given the unique nature, how did you go about investigating it? Well, what we do at FireEyes, we protect our customers from advanced attacks. And what we started to see in some of the attacks against our customers uh, led to a, an investigation by our Singaporean threat intelligence team. And as we started to dig into some of these attacks, we identified that there was actually quite a lot of targeting going on. There was very broad targeting, and there was also a lot of malware. And as we started to uncover the variants of the malware that was able to be discovered, uh, as we pulled that apart, we found that this group had been operating for a very long time. And so in the end, what we had really uncovered was the efforts of a cyber threat group that was exploiting the networks of governments and businesses in Southeast Asia and in India mm -hmm. for the best part of the last decade. What are some of the salient characteristics of how this group operates and what exactly are they going after? Yeah, this group is really targeting the organizations that hold key political, economic, and military information about the region. And in order to gain access to those networks, the group are doing a lot of reconnaissance, making sure they understand exactly who the victims are that they're going to target, producing extremely relevant and timely intelligence information to target those victims with, and then they're sending them a, an email spearfish. And this spearfishing email is containing all of the results of their reconnaissance work. It contains information that makes it appear to come from someone they would trust uh, about a topic that those victims would be interested in, containing information that is relevant to that victim at that time. And because it's so targeted, they are very successful in getting their victim to click on the email, to open the attachment, and then from then, the attachment itself is the first step, the first part of the weapon in their attack to exploit a vulnerability on the local machine and then subsequently give the attackers full control over their victim's it's interesting in the report you say that the group's workflow is illustrative of a collaborative team. You have this coherent development approach. There are indications that they might be working in shifts. So APT30 is illustrative of an increasingly organized adversary in cyberspace. They are mimicking real-world development models. Given that the group is in operation by your estimates for the last 10 years, what would you speculate as to the current state of affairs in cyberspace in the cybercriminal underworld right now? Yeah, I think broadly what we see across Asia is a very high level of targeted attacks. Earlier this year, we produced a report that showed the level of targeted attacks against our customers in Asia versus the rest of the world. And surprisingly, there was about a 35 to 40% higher level of targeted attacks taking place across the Southeast Asia and North Asia and Indian subcontinent. So across all of this region, there's actually a very high level of targeting going on. And then if you couple that with what we see more broadly when we do assessment in companies that aren't using advanced technology today, we find that about 97 
70% of those organisations have been breached by malware that they weren't aware of. And in nearly a third of those cases, they've been breached by what we consider to be an advanced threat. Someone who's actively exploiting that network, uh, taking their time to understand and do full reconnaissance in that network, and ex wow. exfiltrating the data and the information that they're looking for uh, for potentially economic uh, purposes or for national intelligence purposes. So I would characterise today that the level of threat in the region is significantly elevated compared to the global average. And given what we saw with APT30, if this group was able to operate for nearly 10 years without being broadly detected, without having to change any of their infrastructure, which is what we commonly see happen when an organisation conducting attack, their infrastructure will have to change because defenders will be aware of it. This group was able to operate without changing their infrastructure for 10 years, and that's indicative of the inability of most organisations in this region to detect and therefore respond to those attacks. Exactly. I mean, even in this case, I think attribution hasn't been directly possible. So it's likely that the group is still operating, correct? Well, subsequent to publishing the report, the group did go dark. So for those who were being attacked that you know maybe didn't have protection in place, they will have ceased operations for some time. However, we do anticipate that we will see them uh, resuming operations soon. When we've released reports like this in the past, the, the groups that are involved typically will stop, reassess how they got caught, reassess their, their infrastructure and their attack techniques. And then because, of course, they are in this for the long haul, they will recommence operations at some time when they have retooled, rebuilt out their attack infrastructure, uh, maybe they'll come back with a new tactic. Uh, but we don't see this group going away. And one of the challenges, I think, many organizations think that you know, if you have good attribution, that that's going to somehow stop the attack. Uh, it doesn't. You know, This is maybe a, a, a small time period where that particular group is stopping attacks. But this is one of only about 20 that we're tracking in China. We're tracking more than 50 governments that have offensive cyber capabilities today. And we're tracking more than 250 advanced attack groups around the world. That includes also some of the cyber crime and hacktivist groups that we track. So you know, this is one group. There are many groups out there. And uh, Bryce, also in the report, uh, something that fascinated me is how this group systematically labels and keeps track of the malware that they're using. I mean, they have an update mechanism that keeps the malware up to date, continuous update management capability. What are some of the other aspects of, of how the group operates that mimic these real-world development models? Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting that the development team appears to be working relatively closely with their customer, the attack group. Uh, and I think it's important to differentiate here that there's a group of people that appear to be developing the tools, which is possibly separate to the group of people who are using the tools. But the, there's clearly a close relationship between them, and we saw a number of things that were developed into these tools to enable a large-scale operation and to enable that operation to not only scale, but to work with an organization on the attack side that had multiple different skills, uh, the ability to target different countries and different language groups, and also the ability to kind of work on a, on a shift basis, as well as to allow the attackers to prioritize their attack. So you mentioned one of the things that, that was built into the technology that the attackers used. That was the ability for the software to uh, to constantly check to see if it's up to date. Uh, it also was using a similar kind of process to validate if it had changes in the configuration that it needed to use. On the basis of that, the attackers were also able to put together a highly scalable architecture for their uh, command and control activity. Um, so for example, the malware itself, once it had an 
infected the victim machine would communicate back to what we call the first stage command and control server. And that would be a completely automated process. There'd be no attacker involved in that command and control process between the victim and the first stage command and control. But for scale purposes, to enable potentially dozens or even hundreds of attackers to take control of computers when and how they wanted, the attacker would log on to the second stage command and control server, a machine that they would use to ultimately conduct their attack, and then they would instruct the first stage command and control to send a configuration file to the victim, instructing it exactly where to communicate to. And this would allow the attackers to take a victim machine that might be, maybe the victim is using the Thai language, or maybe they're using, maybe they're in a specific country, and direct that machine to the control of someone who could use that most effectively. So if an attack analyst whose language skills and knowledge area reflects the victim itself, so that they could best search for the information they were looking for uh, and make sure that they were taking you know, the most advantage of that victim's computer. Uh, that's that's fascinating. What strikes me here is that you say that this is probably a state-sponsored attack. So what are some of the aspects of the group's operation and capabilities that led you to the conclusion that they are state-sponsored? And you also say that the state sponsoring these attacks is presumably China. Why China? And what's the evidence that compels you to reach that conclusion? So there's a few things that point to this being a state-sponsored actor. Um, first of all, the scale of the operation. It's difficult to run an operation for 10 years and to build out the infrastructure that's necessary. Um, and particularly when we look at the malware itself and how the malware is designed to operate for a long time. We also look at the infrastructure the attackers had. Um, it was designed to support quite large numbers of people. And if you're a small attack group, you're probably not going to have native language, uh, native level language skills in all of the languages that were being targeted across uh, India and Southeast Asia. So that if you just look at the scope of the activity and the number of skills that are required from the development side, the attack side, the language skills, uh, this really gives us a sense of a very large-scale operation. And at the same time, if we look at the victimology, if we look at who was targeted and how they were targeted and what kind of information was being uh, looked for in the attacks, uh, everything that we see there points back to China in some way. We see request or searches for information relating to political dispute in the region and particularly disputes between the boundaries of China and other nations. Uh, we see interest in political development and particularly how that might affect how China responds to it. And we see a lot of interest as well from this group on how journalists are reporting on uh, aspects relating to the legitimacy of the PRC. So there's just a great deal of victimology and the, the type of targeting and what information is being sourced that points immediately back to something of interest to the Chinese government. But if we just leave the victimology aside as well, when we look at the tools themselves, the tools have been designed and developed for use by a Chinese language attacker group. All of the tools that the attackers use on their back end are designed for a Chinese language user to conduct the attack. So the audience for the attackers is Chinese. If we add to that some of the, there's some additional evidence that kind of points towards China as well, which is that some of the very early command and control infrastructure was actually deployed onto servers inside China. And in the case of one of the websites that was used, it belongs to a Chinese business. This business has been in operation for a little bit longer than the company, than the uh, attack group. And that IP address that, that was used for that, that hosting hasn't changed for 10 years. Uh, you know, again, that points back to China as well. But unfortunately, we don't have anything that points to another country. Uh, and clearly, the interest would be of most, you know, what's being targeted is of most interest to the Chinese government.
government than any other group. I think it's interesting. I think it's fair to speculate here that uh, apart from this entire attack infrastructure, there's probably you know a back room of analysts that is also crunching all this information. So this has become a legitimate source of collecting information you know for nation-state actors. So how great do you think is the specter of nation-state actors in cyberspace today, and how do you see this scenario evolving? Well, I think the threat of nation-state activity has only increased in the last several years. Back in 2013, FireEye wrote a report called World War C, which talked about the government-level cyber attacks that were taking place around the world. And in that, we documented 17 nations that had offensive cyber capabilities. Today, it's listed at 50. Uh, there are many more countries that have a dirt of offensive measures in cyberspace as part of their uh, intelligence gathering services and as part of their forward planning and military preparedness. In many cases, cyber has become one of the branches of the military as opposed to just being something that was done from a defense perspective. It's now being looked at very actively as something that is necessary to project force in cyberspace. Right. As you say, this is likely one of many such operations in an increasingly militarized cyberspace. So what kind of damage can these operations cause apart from collecting sensitive information? Because I think even in this case, it's largely been a collection of sensitive information, right? They haven't launched you know, other kinds of attacks or, or is there a specter of that as well? Well, I think you have to look at the motivation of the attack group. And when I look at the, the motivations, I tend to see motivations such as intelligence gathering to better understand my competitors, my trade partners, my potential military adversaries. I see another motive, which is economic espionage, to better support the economic growth or the opportunities in companies within an economy. And we see different nation states have different rules of engagement, if you like, in terms of how they will use intelligence gathering, um, how they'll conduct economic espionage. We also see some of the nation states using techniques to try to gain access to and potentially exert control over the critical infrastructure and in that case the attackers will tend to target the critical infrastructure networks or the sensitive networks that are used for command and control for power generation for logistics and transportation in order to be able to potentially in the advent of a kinetic war to be able to use cyber attacks to disrupt command and control and other critical infrastructure. So we do see the different national intelligence services they do try to target critical infrastructure, not just to gain intelligence, but also as part of forward preparations and military engagement. That said, we haven't seen destructive operations from those groups. And I think as we look at some of the other motivations, that's where you start to see the potential for damage being more prominent. So clearly, it's not in the interest of an intelligence agency to conduct a destructive attack if they're not about to also conduct a kinetic attack. However, if you're a cyber criminal group or potentially have a, a terrorist type of aim, you might consider that to be something you would do, either for extortion or literally just cause damage. With the criminal groups, we tend to see a financial motive. So when they're con collecting intelligence, usually uh, with the aim of monetizing that through identity fraud or selling it on to other groups who can leverage it, they'll do this with intellectual property. They'll do this with intelligence about things that might move the market, so M&A activity, patent dispute, legal action that might be about to take place. This is all very useful for making money on the financial market, uh, as well as you know, obviously stealing credit card data, access to payment infrastructure to put payments through and so on. But we also see some of the cyber terrorist groups are starting to move beyond just website defacement, moving beyond the propaganda mission and looking at ways that they could potentially conduct more destructive attacks. And then there's also some groups that are nation state sponsored who are clearly happy if they like to make destructive attacks. We've seen that with North Korea. Uh, North Korea conducted a destructive attack in March 2013 against the South Koreans. They destroyed machines that were providing banking infrastructure. And then again, 
last year, they conducted a destructive attack in Sony Pictures Entertainment, and in that destructive attack, they wiped tens of thousands of computers, making them inoperable. So the rules of engagement vary a lot, and I think you need to look at the objectives of the groups behind the attack. One of the things that I'll mention here as well is often people confuse the threat with the types of tools of attack. People might think DDoS is a threat, or DuckNet as a tool is a threat, but actually the threat are the people behind those attacks, and depending on the mission of the attacker, they'll choose the right tools to achieve their mission. And so focusing on just the tools isn't enough. You really need to understand what kind of people are interested to attack you, how are they likely to attack you, what are they likely to target, what are they likely to do with that information or that access, and then you can use that information to align defenses according to who's likely to come after you and what their assets are that are of most value to them. All right, Bryce. Last question for you. What kind of information assets in India have been compromised by the group? Have you recorded any kind of response from the defenders? And what's your advice to practitioners in critical sectors in India? Well, the types of information that we've seen being stolen, we've seen actually some of the attacks were against the defense sector in India. In one case, we saw an attack against an aerospace and defense contractor. And some of the information that was stolen there related to the designs of specific technology that's used in the defense sector. It would be fair to say that more broadly this group has been targeting a lot of journalists as well as military organizations and defense organizations and they're clearly interested in intelligence that would be of use to military planners to understand how the different military organizations across the region are preparing for border disputes and how they would respond in the event of a kinetic attack. When I think about you know, response from the defenders, uh, clearly one of the responses is you know to try to shut down some of these attacks. Many of the organizations that were being targeted had no idea it was happening. Unfortunately, most organizations today don't have the ability to detect these attacks, and they really need to change the way they think about these attackers and think about how they can prevent them. In terms of the defender's response, it really comes down to putting in place the right technology to be able to detect these attacks and then shut the attackers out. And for companies and government organizations that don't have the ability to detect these attacks, they really need to rethink the security architecture to be able to detect and respond to these attacks. It's important to recognize that you know, technology is, is clearly an important part of this, but if you're only detecting these attacks, you're missing half of the equation, which is you need to respond. You need to kick the attacker out of the environment. And it's not enough just to wipe the malware and, and hope that they've gone away. These attackers will come back again and again. It's their day job to break in. So it's fundamental today to understand everything that the attacker has done once they've completed a compromise of a computer. You need to know what they've compromised. Did they steal the credentials on that local machine? Did they install other malware? Did they move laterally in the organization? How did they do that? What did they collect? Did they exfiltrate data out of the organization? If they did, what was it? And what does it mean for the organization? Does, it, does that organization now have to change its plans for how it goes to market with a product or how it will prepare for attack by another country? You then need to feed the intelligence about those attacks back into how you operate your security environment and continue learn about these attackers and continuously adjust your defensive posture according to who's attacking you. Right, great, Bryce. That was really illuminating. Thanks for speaking with me. Oh, you're very welcome and thank you very much, Varun. You are listening to Bryce Boland, CTO APAC for FireEye. This is Varun Haran, Principal Correspondent for ISMG. Thank you for listening.